Same as it's been through May, but there's going to be a few adjustments. So starting next week, 10 o'clock is when service will still begin. Uh, But there will not be a break in between singing and the sermon as there has been over these last several weeks. The announcements are actually going to be pushed all the way to the end. So you guys get to look forward to the announcements instead of just get through them at the beginning. Um, But we are, uh, so next week we're going to go right into singing at 10 o'clock. About 20 minutes of singing, we're going to get back to kind of uh, a normal looking service uh, schedule. Uh, After the singing is over, um, we will move into the to the sermon. There will also be communion coming, obviously, as it will be the first Sunday of the month as well. But that will be incorporated right into the service. We'll start at 10. It will be seamless. We'll go all the way through. Once the singing is over, the kids will be invited to go downstairs to Children's Church, uh, as always. And, uh, and then, after Children's Church and service is over, uh, there will be a few announcements after the... the the service ends, and those announcements will just be to kind of show you, tell you what's going on, and also to allow there to be then a transition from service right to Adult Bible Fellowship ABF, which will be held in the sanctuary, so we can still live stream ABF, and then the kids, which will already be downstairs, will then uh, well, they will transition to Sunday school, and that's going to happen after service. So that's going to be around 11:15 to 11:30, depending on how long everything takes. Um, and then the hope would be the ABF and Sunday school will be finishing uh, around noon, if not 12:15 in that range. Um, so to announce that is that's how everything's going to work, and I want to talk specifically about the kids for a little bit. So what we're going to start doing as we get kids Sunday school back is this summer we have an exciting opportunity. We have just enough time that we're going to go through a series called What's in the Bible. It's a video series of puppetry that takes the kids and shows them the overarching story of the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and it's only going to take 13 weeks. So we're going to do that through all the summer. This is very exciting for the kids. It's fun, but also it's very, very informational. It teaches them all about the Bible, what's in the Bible, and how it relates to them. And we've been doing that in small pieces as we've been going through what we call the Gospel Project, but this is going to be one big, sweeping, overarching view. And that's going to happen both in our children's church as well as Sunday school. So you're going to actually get two parts of the video, and you're going to get discussion in both areas. So if you've got kids, I would highly encourage you to make sure they can attend both of those sections as they'll be able to fully understand what's going on if we do that. As we go forward through the summer, you will be hearing about other options for ABF as far as we may, well, we're talking about membership class, baptism class, um, eventually getting back to maybe a parenting or marriage class. There's lots of things we're talking about, but for now, we're just going to be having the ABF and the Kids Sunday School, and then we'll go from there. So that's starting next week, so make sure you're here at 10, and uh, if you're watching the stream, uh, you're going to want to be watching the stream at about, about 10.20 is about when the sermon will begin, uh, and then again, ABF will be streamed right afterwards as well. Another thing that's starting this week, uh, as we enter June, for those of you who are listening who are here or online, if you are in the young adult age bracket of 18 to 30, uh, we are starting our summer YAM, uh, Young Adult Ministry, which has yet to be renamed and may not be renamed. We're seeing what's going to happen. But we are starting Tuesday night at my house, 8 o'clock. We're having a bonfire to start things off. So if you are in that, uh, that group... That starts Tuesday night. I know it's not in the bulletin, but I wanted to make sure that everyone was aware of that. Um, Finally, uh, today, as many of you understand, this is the weekend of Memorial Day. And so we do want to just say uh, 
uh, you know, as we think about and have the opportunity this weekend to think about all those who have given their lives for our country, we do want to just thank everyone who sacrificed anything, uh, time, uh, and all of those things that have served in the service. We want to thank you if that's you, and also just encourage you to remember those who have given their lives for this country this weekend. You have an opportunity to do that actually tomorrow. Uh, at the Alfred Rural Cemetery. Um, a bunch of our churches actually participate in uh, a service up there at 11 o'clock in which we remember those who have given their lives, remember veterans, and have an opportunity to also uh, creatively um, point to the gospel as well. So we'd encourage you at 11 o'clock, if you want to be at the Alfred Rural Cemetery, to be there. That would be a great support and an opportunity to not only remember those who have given their lives, but also a chance to remember what Jesus has done as well. And so we're going to be doing that tomorrow at 11. With that being said, I'm just going to go ahead and pray one more time as Justin is about ready to come up, and we'll continue our series of Daniel, and we'll get right into the sermon. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning again, and I pray right now that as we're about to hear from your word, that you would use that word to uh, change us, to transform our lives to help us to understand you more and that we may walk away today more in awe of you, that we may walk away more in love with you, that we may walk away ready uh, to follow you even more completely. Would you help us to learn all these things as we look to your word? Help Justin as he brings your word. Would you guide him and direct him as well as he speaks? We thank you for this time we've had and what we're going to experience as well as we listen to your word. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
My bad. <laughs> it's on now, isn't it? It's okay. <laughs> Love you too, Ken. <laughs> so, <laughs> we engage with life, and at times we need to remember that there's more going on than meets the eye, particularly when we're suffering, particularly when life is hard, particularly when there's pressure and things that we don't know what's going on, like right now, for example. But paradoxically, it's those times when remembering that there's more than meets the eye is really, really important. After the Apostle Paul described some of his own suffering in pursuing faithful ministry to proclaim the gospel and extend the message of God's grace to as many people as he could, he writes these powerful words in 2 Corinthians four sixteen to 18 So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Why doesn't Paul lose heart when he faces suffering? Because he knows there's more than meets the eye going on. Seven verses after these words, he writes, For we walk by faith and not by sight. Paul sees with his eyeballs his outer self wasting away, being destroyed by what he suffers. But he believes what he cannot see with his eyeballs. What does he believe? That his inner self is being renewed day by day, every day. That's something that's happening to him even when he doesn't feel it and even though he cannot see evidence of it all the time. That's what he believes God is doing right then and there while he's suffering. But he also believes the glorious promise of verse 17. God is using his affliction to create something that Paul will experience in the resurrection, in the new creation. The affliction that he feels, the affliction that he sees, the suffering that he experiences is producing glory that will be experienced later, after the resurrection. Do you believe that 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 is what God is doing with your suffering? I hope you do. But notice what we're supposed to do in verse 18. And Paul says that he does this. We are supposed to look at invisible things. Look at things you cannot see. What impossible nonsense is this? It's the very definition of faith. Hebrews 11.1 Now faith is the assurance of of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Every example given in Hebrews 11 of faithful men and women is an example of someone who knew God had promised something to them. They believed it, and then they acted in light of their belief. They lived by faith and not by sight. 
This morning, we're looking at Daniel chapter 10. The prophet Daniel receives his final visionary experience, and his record of this experience spans chapters 10 through 12. This visionary experience includes a conversation between Daniel and an unnamed angel. And the angel reveals some unseen things, things that Daniel had no knowledge about and would have had no knowledge about if this angel hadn't told him. What the angel tells Daniel pulls the curtain back to reveal a mysterious and puzzling glimpse into conflict in heaven, which seems to reflect conflicts happening on the earth or that will happen on earth. One of the great lessons we learn from this chapter is that when we see conflicts and warfare on earth, there is more than meets the eye going on. And it's not God alone who is acting behind the scenes. We must restrain ourselves from getting too carried away and going beyond what the text says, however. Chapter 10 is only introductory only preliminary to the actual message God seeks to communicate to Daniel and through Daniel to God's people throughout the ages, which includes us. But before we consider the details of chapter 10, since chapters 10 through 12 are a single visionary experience, essentially, we can summarize the primary message of this final vision for us. The message of Daniel 10 through 12 can be summarized like this. God rules over the details of the future, even as that future consists of wars and rumors of wars, great tribulation for God's people, and the increase of wickedness, all leading, however, to the grand climax of God's judgment and the salvation of the remnant in the resurrection of the dead. With that summary you can see that this vision both fits in with the rest of what we've already learned from the book of Daniel and also goes beyond it, driving us to the final culmination of all of history. But first, let's consider the vision of great conflict as Daniel describes it in chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. The date was 536 B.C., Daniel describes receiving a word, which he then describes as true and as a great conflict, a great warfare. Note also that he claims to understand what he saw. And what he saw grieved him terribly, so that he went into an extended period of fasting. For three weeks, he refused to eat the fine food and drink the fine wine he would have been accustomed to eating as a respected royal official in the Persian court. And he went without essentially wearing deodorant for 21 days. Where we have the word weeks in our English Bibles, the Hebrew has the phrase weeks of days, making sure that Hebrew readers would shift away from thinking about weeks of years as in the previous paragraph in Daniel 9, 24 to 27. Now, 
My understanding of what we just read is that Daniel has had a vision at the beginning of this three-week period, but he does not describe what he saw. Typically, as in chapter 7 and 8 especially, Daniel would describe the contents of the vision, exactly what he saw and what he heard, and then he would recount how an angel explained to him what it meant. I think Daniel is doing something different here. Rather than describe the vision, he simply says that he understood the gist of it all. It upset him deeply, and he went into a purposeful three-week period of fasting. What happens next, I believe, is a separate vision. A vision at the conclusion of the three-week period of fasting, in which he sees a great vision of a great man who comes to reveal in more detail the meaning of what Daniel had seen in the first vision. This visionary encounter with this man extends all the way through chapter 12, but we're going to break it up in pieces. Let's look at verses 4 to 14. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like a barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, Understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael... One of the chief princes came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. So, Daniel has come to the end of his period of fasting on the 24th day of the first month. The vision he had seen and whatever he had truly understood from it had disturbed him significantly. The reason for Daniel's fasting and grieving must be linked to whatever he saw in the vision. Then Daniel is hit with an additional visionary experience. He's out by the Tigris River with a company of men who recognize something bizarre is happening to Daniel. And they run off. But Daniel describes what he sees this time. Verses 5 and 6 give several details of the appearance of a man clothed in linen. Many have speculated that this is the angel Gabriel. But 
since Gabriel featured in Daniel's earlier visionary experiences, and he never described him with any of these fantastic details, it seems unlikely to me that this is Gabriel again. Others have noticed that some of these details are reflected in the way John describes the risen Jesus when he appears to him in the book of Revelation. I remain unconvinced that this is a so-called Christophany or a so-called pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. There are key differences in the way Jesus is described in Revelation 1 that suggests his superiority to this figure in Daniel. I'll point to the one key example that seems to be overlooked by most folks. And if you want to know more of what I think about that vision in Revelation 1, you can go online and find the sermon I preached here, Easter 2020. Daniel describes this man as having a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. In Revelation 1, John describes Jesus as having a golden sash around his chest. In Daniel's vision, the figure had gold around his waist. In John's, the gold is across the chest. The difference may be an intentional movement to show that the one in John's vision has a higher rank than the one in Daniel's vision. In any case, we'll find more reasons to doubt that Daniel saw Jesus on this occasion as we press on through the passage. The figure is impressive, intimidating, and terrifying. Certainly not quite like other angels we encounter in the Bible. This figure has most in common with the living creatures Ezekiel saw in his visions, the ones depicted as carrying God's throne chariot. In Ezekiel chapter 10, these living creatures are identified as cherubim, not angels. But Ezekiel saw another angelic figure, creature in that encounter, described as simply a man clothed in linen, similar to how Daniel describes this figure here. Interestingly, the book of Ezekiel never uses the word angel, and Daniel only uses the word angel twice in this book, once quoting King Nebuchadnezzar, referring to the one who rescued Daniel's three friends from the fiery furnace in chapter 3, and then Daniel tells King Cyrus that God had sent an angel to shut the lion's mouths in chapter 6. So this figure in chapter 10 remains mysterious. For simplicity's sake, I will refer to him as an angel. This angelic vision knocks Daniel to the ground. He had been fasting from his normal rich diet, so he may have been physically weakened anyway. But we should also remember that at this point, Daniel's in his 80s. He's overwhelmed. And in verse 9, he faints. But in verse 10, the angel begins to speak to him in his booming, echoing voice. And he touches him restoring him to consciousness and getting him up on his hands and knees. He's gentle with old Daniel, but he tells him to stand on his feet to receive this message. It reminds him, as Gabriel had said in chapter 9, that Daniel is greatly loved or treasured by God. And he wants him to pay attention and understand what he has been sent to say to him. The end of verse 12, we learn that Daniel had been praying. And this angel has arrived in response to Daniel's praying. Thus, as with Daniel's prayer of chapter 9, God has sent an angel to give him an answer. However, in verse 13, we learn that this angel was delayed in bringing this response. 
Whereas Gabriel had taken about three minutes to arrive from heaven to Daniel, it took this angel three weeks to arrive. He had left when Daniel had begun his three-week fast, but he would not arrive until Daniel had completed the fast. In verse 13, we are introduced to the prince of the kingdom of Persia, or the ruler of the kingdom of Persia. So God dispatched this angel with a message for Daniel as soon as Daniel started praying and fasting, after having received a vision from the Lord. As the angel was traveling from heaven to earth, a ruler associated with the Persian empire blocked his path and engaged him so as to prevent him from delivering the message. What kind of engagement occurs between these two angelic beings is not described, and we need to be careful about some of the imaginative, fictional accounts that are sometimes presented with animalistic descriptions of the ruler of Persia, clashing fiery swords and blasts of lasers, something more akin to what I watched in those Transformers cartoons in the 80s. As boring as it might sound to us entertainment-saturated Americans, the phrase translated withstood usually simply refers to someone stepping in front of someone else to have a conversation or a debate or an argument. The context presses this phrase to imply a conflict of some type, but we should be careful about our speculation of what that might have looked like or sounded like. Nevertheless, the ruler of Persia successfully holds up the angel from delivering his message to Daniel until Michael, described here as one of the chief princes, described later in chapter 12, verse 1, as the great prince who has charge of your people and referred to in the New Testament as the archangel. He came to help this angel to provide support, to give an advantage to this unnamed angel over the prince of Persia. But the last phrase of verse 13 provides another mystery. The biggest question is where there is. The ESV says, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. The King James Version is better here. And I remained there with the kings of Persia. The kings of Persia seems to refer to the human kings of Persia whereas the prince or ruler of Persia that we've been talking about, the one who prevented the angel from delivering his message, was a heavenly being of some kind. So it seems that Michael arrives on the heavenly battlefront, relieves the angel, and stops the heavenly ruler of Persia from preventing the angel to get to Daniel. But before he gets to Daniel, he makes a pit stop to check in on the kings of Persia. Who are the kings of Persia? Well, we know from verse 1 that Cyrus is king of Persia. Note the singular. In verse 13, the angel speaks of kings, plural. There are two options that I think are possible for understanding this phrase. Historically, in this very year, the third year of Cyrus's reign over the Persian Empire after they conquered the Babylonian Empire, there is evidence that Cyrus named his son, Cambyses, as vice-regent, similar to what we saw with Belshazzar of Babylon, serving as vice-regent to his father, Nabonidus. 
Thus, historically, this was the first year of the Persian Empire where two kings were reigning at once. Cambyses is not mentioned in the Bible at all. The other option is to recognize that this angel has not been sent only on an errand of delivering a message to Daniel. Rather, in addition to delivering this message to Daniel, this angel has a role to play with the earthly kings of Persia, from Cyrus down through Artaxerxes at least, the next four kings. We might see this as a kind of heavenly espionage. Yahweh, the God of Israel, has sent this anonymous angel as a covert operative, a spy, to influence the kings of Persia behind enemy lines, you might say. It is this angel's influence, perhaps, that leads to King Cyrus's continued public policy that favored the Jewish people. It is this angel's continued influence that ensures Persian kings will continue in their public policy to favor the Jewish people down through at least King Artaxerxes. I personally think this is the point of that phrase here in verse 13. Nevertheless, the larger point is that this angel has come to provide Daniel with unique understanding of what is to happen to your people in the latter days. Indeed, as we'll see when we come to chapter 12, the angel's explanation points all the way to the resurrection of the dead. However, the bulk of what we're going to read about in chapter 11 has to do with the historical outworking of earthly conflicts within the Greek empire that results in significant suffering and difficulty for the Jewish people. Thus, through this vision, we're going to get our attention pushed, Daniel's attention pushed, to the farthest fulfillment of God's promises. The majority of information provided has to do with plotting the immediate future, stretching over the next few hundred years after Daniel is gone. We shouldn't assume in the latter days refers only to the very final season of human history. Now, even this introduction from the angel is too much for old Daniel to handle. So he finds himself on the ground again. And the angel gently, kindly strengthens him. We read more about this strengthening angel from verse 15 to the end of the chapter and into verse 1 of chapter 11. There's an unfortunate chapter break here. Let's pick up in Daniel 10, 15. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened, and he said, And and I said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, 
Behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Verse 16 could be introducing another angelic figure into the picture, but I think this is the same one we've been reading about. This time he touches Daniel's lips, which seems to enable Daniel to find his words. Daniel complains of his weakness and he struggles to breathe. The angel touches him again and seems to infuse Daniel with renewed physical strength. He reminds Daniel of his value to God and instructs him not to be afraid. Curiously, where the ESV has, be strong and of good courage, the Hebrew has literally, be strong and be strong. The touch, the word of encouragement about Daniel's value and the command to be strong seems to do the trick. Daniel is strengthened. Then the angel asks what seems to be a silly question at this point. Do you know why I've come to you? I think this is a rhetorical question, maybe like asking, are you ready to listen now? Are you ready to hear what I have to say? But before he tells him, and the suspense is killing us already, before he tells him, he says, but now I will return to fight against the king of the prince of Persia. This message was so important that the archangel Michael was willing to step in to relieve this angel from his conflict with the heavenly ruler of Persia. But once the message is delivered, it's back to the battlefront for this angel. And then he adds an intriguing announcement. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. Does when I go out mean when I leave you, Daniel, after delivering this message? Or does it mean when I leave, having finished fighting against the prince of Persia? I think probably the second option is intended, but I can't be real sure. And where will the prince of Greece come? And what will he do? The angel does not say. The message this angel has to report is inscribed in the book of truth, apparently referring to God's decree for the developments of human history, most of which God has not, does not, and will not reveal to anyone on earth. Then the angel mentions again, almost as though he's expressing praise or gratitude, that the only one who's helping him in the heavenly battlefront is Michael, whom he here calls your prince, by which he does not mean Daniel's prince or Daniel's guardian angel. The your is plural. Michael is the heavenly ruler of the Jewish people. We'll expand on this in just a minute. But the final verse of the section is actually verse 1 of chapter 11. The angel seems to refer to the past, the first year of Darius the Mede, which is probably the same man as Cyrus the Persian. Thus, the angel refers to something that began happening two years ago, but what he says is ambiguous. He says, two years ago, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. But who is the him? The angel stood up to strengthen. It could be either Darius the Mede or Michael, the archangel. Some students of scripture have opted for Michael 
because they can't understand why or how it would be that this angel would have strengthened, enabled the pagan Persian king. That's what the ruler of Persia is supposed to be doing, right? However, if the suggestion that this angel is working as kind of, as a kind of covert operative, he's a spy really on the side of the Jewish people, then it makes sense that he'd be somehow influencing Persian public policy in such a way that it benefits the Jewish people. Even as the heavenly ruler of Persia would want Persia to oppose God and his people. That then leads us to a larger discussion this morning of these heavenly rulers and their relationship to earthly kingdoms. Prince of Persia, Prince of Greece, Prince of Israel. What are we talking about here? We want to avoid speculating too much, and we want to focus on what the text does in fact say. The angel and Michael, the Prince of Israel, fight against the Prince of Persia. This seems to be a piece of the background for Paul's use of the terms principalities and powers or rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Eliana asked me this week, what are you working on, Daddy? And I said, writing a sermon. And she said, what's it about? Without looking up from my computer, I raised my eyebrows and said simply, naughty angels. So for the rest of the week, she's been asking me, Daddy, are you going to talk about the naughty angels today? Well, today's finally the day we get to talk about the naughty angels. And this sermon shall forevermore be known, in my house at least, as the naughty angels sermon. But there is a larger background that may be important for us to consider at this point. As the Lord revealed a judgment song to Moses... He recounted some of the story of his dealings with humanity. In Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, we read these words. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. What event is the Lord referring to here? When did Yahweh divide mankind, literally the sons of Adam? Genesis 11. In response to rebellious humanity constructing a city and a tower with its top in the heavens in order to make a name for themselves and to prevent them from being dispersed over the face of the whole earth as God had intended them to be, The Lord came down and in judgment caused them to suddenly speak in different languages. And Genesis 11, 8 summarizes, So Yahweh dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Now, Moses, as he wrote down the story, had already spoken of this event in Genesis 10, 5 in the midst of a lengthy genealogy, often referred to as the Table of Nations, where we read, From these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. And then in 1032, 
we read, these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. The word translated spread in these two verses in Genesis 10 is the same exact word as translated divided in Deuteronomy 32.8. So back in Deuteronomy 32.8, the song describes this event in positive terms as Yahweh giving the nations their inheritance. And that was when he fixed the borders of the peoples. The Apostle Paul also spoke of this event, it seems, in Acts 17.26, where he said to the men of Athens, And he made from one man every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Now, from Paul's words, it seems that this is to be applied universally to all nations throughout history. We might wonder then why borders change or nations conquer other nations. Does that reflect nations changing and rebelling against this original allotment? Or are we to recognize God's involvement in those changes as well, according to a set plan that God established beforehand? The prophet Isaiah answers this question as he announces judgment against the nation of Assyria in response to the king of Assyria pridefully taking credit for his own conquests. Yahweh says in Isaiah 10, 13, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. And of course, this fits in with what we've seen on display throughout the book of Daniel. Yahweh sets up kings and kingdoms and brings them down. So, Deuteronomy 32.8 explains the significance of the dividing of humanity following the Tower of Babel incident as being the occasion when the Lord planned out definitively the movements of all nations throughout history. But there is an additional detail that impinges on our understanding of this. Deuteronomy 32.8 says that he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, that's the ESV, but the NIV, the New American Standard, the King James Version, and the New King James Version all say, according to the number of the sons of Israel. A few other versions have sons of God here, so that Bible translations today are quite divided on this verse, and all of the modern versions will supply a footnote to indicate the possibility of the other reading. The sons of God is not the same thing as the sons of Israel. The consensus of scholars has moved pretty definitively toward believing that sons of God is correct here. The original, spirit-inspired phrase, as reflected in the Dead Sea Scrolls and other ancient translations of Deuteronomy. Who are the sons of God? Sons of God is a reference to angelic beings, as seen in Job chapters 1 and 2, for example. And most folks see this as the background for understanding Daniel chapter 10. Essentially, what Deuteronomy 32.8 suggests is that after the Tower of Babel, 
as an act of judgment against rebellious humanity, Yahweh divided the nations geographically and linguistically on earth, both the handful of nations that would develop from the people living then as well as all that would develop through the course of history, and he further assigned them to be under the dominion of heavenly rulers. Since this was an act of judgment against rebellious humanity, it is likely that we're intended to understand these sons of God as also in rebellion against God, as you find them in Genesis 6, for example. These are the rulers and authorities Paul describes as the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, in Ephesians 6, 12. The chief ruler is the only one whose name has been revealed to us, Satan. Before we extend the application of what we're seeing in these verses, it's important to see the rest of the story in Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. Verse 9 introduces a contrast. Whereas Yahweh assigned the nations to these fallen spiritual rulers, he chose Israel as his own allotted heritage. He didn't delegate the rule of Israel to a fallen spiritual ruler, to an angelic power, not even to Michael originally. And going back to the Genesis story, we see this development in history right after Genesis 11. In Genesis 12... The Lord appears to Abram in a land not far from Babel and commands him to leave his pagan life behind and offers him promises beyond his wildest imagination. Yahweh chose Abram's family, promised to multiply them, promised to fashion his descendants into a nation and promised to work through that nation to bring blessing and salvation to all the other rebellious nations of the world. So instead of abandoning humanity completely, as we deserved for him to do, he chose one sinful, idolatrous, rebellious man and chose to bless him and his descendants and his family and to transform them into something they were not and could not become on their own, a holy nation. What we see unfold in the vision of Daniel 10, the information we hear from the angel about conflict among these angelic rulers suggests that the conflicts in heaven are reflected and even shape the conflicts we see unfolding on earth. When we hear of wars and rumors of wars, we can be sure that there is more than meets the eye going on. So with this background in mind, What more can we say about what we see in Daniel chapter 10? And then we'll close with some considerations about spiritual warfare as Paul lays it out for us. The prince or ruler of Persia refers to a heavenly being in rebellion against God who works in some way to influence the culture and policies of the Persian empire that causes the Persian people on earth to remain in their darkness and rebellion against God. Surely, this ruler utilizes deception and idolatry, but also greed, corruption, and a thirst for violence, 
All of these sinful aspects of human nature are stoked and inflamed among people by this evil heavenly ruler. Likewise, the prince or ruler of Greece refers to a heavenly being in rebellion against God who works in some way to influence the culture and policies of Greece to cause the Greeks on earth to remain in their darkness and rebellion against God. But more than this, it seems likely that the heavenly ruler of Greece may at times enter into conflict with the heavenly rulers of other nations. So, for example... When the angel talking with Daniel says that he is going to leave and then the ruler of Greece will come, I wonder if we can recognize the heavenly spiritual reason for the decline of the Persian Empire after the days of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes especially. Because the angel who had been secretly influencing him to execute policies in support of the Jewish people had to leave his post and began directly attacking the heavenly ruler of Persia. Not long after that, we come to the Persian king known as Xerxes, or Ahasuerus in our Bibles, the king who marries Esther, who ultimately rescues the Jewish people from genocide. But at about the same time in history, the little nation of Greece was hammering on the Persian empire and hammering on King Xerxes himself. And he became obsessed with conquering them because they kept winning. Could we be seeing on the stage of earthly history and military strategy a reflection of the evil heavenly ruler of Greece gaining an advantage over the evil heavenly ruler of Persia? Or, I'm raising a question here, or... In light of Jesus calling into question whether Satan would so divide his forces in conflict with each other, perhaps we could view it more as the chief ruler, Satan, reassigning and redeploying his agents in different places and at different times. However you look at it, Satan and the forces of evil are achieving their nefarious purposes wherever there is warfare and violence on earth, whether internally in civil wars or internationally. Unfortunately, these realities in Daniel 10 and Deuteronomy 32 have been twisted into a bizarre concept of spiritual warfare that has no basis in the Bible whatsoever, sometimes referred to as strategic-level spiritual warfare. From Daniel 10 especially, the notion has arisen that there are territorial spirits that must be engaged by Christians, addressed by name, rebuked, and driven out of a particular region before effective ministry can be achieved. Proponents of this kind of spiritual warfare have developed what I call prayer mantras, or certain phrases or certain kinds of speaking in tongues are utilized to attempt to bind the spirits or bind Satan. I hope you can see from just reading Daniel 10 that none of that is here. Daniel had absolutely no knowledge of these heavenly rulers before this angel told him about them. Daniel didn't pray against them, and Daniel's prayer didn't affect anything going on up there in the conflict in heaven. The so-called success 
reported in connection with purveyors of these false, unbiblical ideas is sometimes another form of deception from the great deceiver himself. Other times where there is genuine healing, genuine salvation, genuine freedom from the powers of evil given to sufferers and sinners alike in particular places after some of these spiritual warfare tactics are employed, we should attribute it solely to the mercy of God. And we shouldn't necessarily assume that the methods used are biblical or God-honoring at all. Daniel 10 is merely the prelude to the actual message, the revelation of some of the details of earthly conflicts to come after Daniel's day. We'll look at the first part of that next Sunday. But to conclude, I want to consider briefly biblical spiritual warfare, looking at the famous passage in Ephesians 6. I will not repeat the devotional reflections I offered in detail in one of our videos last year about the nature of the armor of God, as Paul speaks of it there. If you're interested, you can go on our website or our YouTube page and review that. Instead, let us consider Paul's reminder that we are indeed wrestling the rulers, whether we know it or not. In Ephesians 6, 10, and 11, Paul begins to conclude this grand letter with a call to Christians to finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The chief enemy we are to stand against is the devil. That's no surprise. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, we are not ignorant of his designs. He intends to deceive, to tempt, to afflict, and to kill God's people. And he prowls around with his threats like a lion roaring to intimidate its prey, as Peter describes him. But in Ephesians 6.12, Paul introduces these other evil beings, apparently under the oversight of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our suffering in this world is often perpetrated by human beings. Flesh and blood... So it's easy to get distracted and to think that people are our real enemies. We think we're engaging in a wrestling match with people, like human governors or presidents, with whom we disagree strongly, whom we often blame for the misery of our nation. And indeed, they will be held accountable to the one who granted them the authority in the first place, the Lord but Paul here reminds us yet again that there is more than meets the eye. Our true wrestle is with these invisible rulers. How are we wrestling with them if they're in heaven? Well, we are to combat their influence in this world. Because the way they are engaging, the way they are waging their warfare against us, is by influencing people on earth. Both people in high places, governing officials motivated by greed or lust or prejudice, and people out on the streets, out in the business world, out in the culture. So 
appreciate the confusion that Paul is addressing here. It's easy to treat people as our enemy. To think that if we could just get a different elected official in place, if we could just get the wicked person who is making our lives so hard, causing us such grief, out of the way, then all would be well. And then we invest our energies and our resources in bringing that about, all the while forgetting that there are these spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places who are ensuring that our culture and the people who make our culture will continue sowing bad seeds, bad crops all around us. So how does Paul call us to engage in this wrestling match? Paradoxically, he tells us to stand still. Do what the Jewish leaders during the time of the Greek Empire refused to do. Resist the sway of the culture. Refuse to compromise. Stand firm on the gospel. And refuse to let anyone divert your attention away from serving the true king, Jesus. To embrace and wear and utilize the whole armor of God is to simply receive the gifts of God's grace and salvation, to trust the finished work of the Messiah, and to live by faith in all the promises of God that flow from that wonderfully finished work. Preach the gospel to yourself every day, and then preach to everyone else around. Start with your spouse and your kids. If they're already Christians, they still need to hear the gospel. Again and again and again. They need to be reminded of what Jesus has done. The most important thing we need to know about spiritual warfare when it comes to these rulers and authorities, these spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, is that the war has already been decisively won. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, Paul explains how God has accomplished our salvation. How it is that the righteous judge can extend forgiveness of sins to guilty sinners. In verse 14, he explains that God did this by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus' death paid the debt of our sin completely so that the account with my name on it has a zero balance and has been stamped, paid in full. Actually, it's even better than that. My account actually has a positive balance equating to a status of righteous. But Paul's not focusing on that here in Colossians 2. Instead, in verse 15, he elaborates what impact Jesus' death on the cross had on these heavenly rulers. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. What does it mean to disarm someone? It means to take away their weapons. Now, there's one weapon in particular that Paul is focused on here, and it's the only weapon that Satan and his forces have that can actually do eternal harm to people. It's that record of debt he mentioned in verse 14. 
Satan and his forces could and would bring that record of debt, the list of charges against us, guilty criminals, into God's courtroom and insist that God, in his justice, must condemn us to eternal punishment because that is what we owe. That is what we deserve. That is what we have earned. But now that the record has been erased, the enemy's big gun, if you will, their ultimate secret weapon has been taken away from them. Sure, they can still deceive and tempt and afflict us, but only under the gracious limitations of God. They can even kill us, but even that cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In all, in all that the devil and his forces might do to us in this life, even if they kill us, we are massively winning, super conquering, is a good rendering of Paul's word in Romans 8, 37. And we experience the victory through him who loved us, the Messiah who died for us. When Jesus was approaching the cross, he told his disciples in John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Indeed, Michael, the archangel, had the honor of tossing the chief ruler, Satan, out of the heavenly courtroom, as depicted in Revelation 12. Now, Ever since the enthronement of the true king, Jesus, the dragon and his minions are newly limited in their ability to harm God's people. Oh, the dragon is enraged by his defeat. And he is on earth now making war against God's people and will continue to do, to do so until his final judgment comes. This final judgment was announced in Isaiah 24, verses 21 and 22. On that day, Yahweh will punish the host of heaven, in heaven, and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. And after many days, they will be punished. It is Revelation 20 alone in Scripture that tells us that the time of their confinement will be 1,000 years. The vision of Revelation 20 focuses on Satan alone. But Isaiah 24 indicates that all these rulers and authorities will be bound and imprisoned. The rebellious kings of the earth will have been slain when Jesus returned. And then, after his return, Jesus will reign for a thousand years with his people on this broken, untransformed earth while Satan and his forces and his followers remain imprisoned in Hades, the abyss, the bottomless pit. Then, after the thousand years, Satan and his forces will be released to mount one final attack against God's resurrected people. I suppose to demonstrate that their rebellion and their refusal to repent is just that hardened that even a thousand years of incarceration doesn't soften their anti-God resolve. And we read these words in Revelation 20, verses 9 and 10. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. 
But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. To repeat the common analogy from World War II, D-Day for Christians happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross, paying for the sins of His people, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven to take His rightful place at the right hand of God as the true King, true ruler, Lord of all. We wait the day of His return, analogous to V-Day. Although when Jesus returns, there will be no surrender of the enemies. Now, today, we are living in the midst of the mop-up operations. Sometimes we talk about spiritual warfare as though we're on the losing side. We are not. Here's what I think is most confusing about Paul's instructions about spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. He starts by telling us that we're not wrestling against human beings and reminding us that our real enemies are these cosmic powers. But the -the on-the-ground practical problem is that we... We don't actually engage these rulers and authorities directly. Much confusion has come right here, where manuals have been produced on proper procedure for casting out demons. I wonder if you've noticed that this is actually the first time in this sermon that I've used the word demon. I don't think these rulers and authorities are the same thing that we see as demons in the Gospels and the book of Acts. It remains an important fact for me that in all the letters of the New Testament, we have no instruction whatsoever for how to or whether to engage directly with demons. These rulers and authorities could be called demonic, by which we might just mean evil, but they are higher level, higher order beings than demons. Nevertheless, Paul indicates that our wrestle, our struggle is indeed against them. By this, I think Paul simply means to remind us that we shouldn't demonize human beings. No matter how sinister, no matter how harmful, no matter how wicked they are, we should recognize that there are spiritual forces that have influenced their human wickedness. Paul's battle plan in Ephesians 6 is a resistance strategy, not an offensive playbook. Daniel certainly didn't do anything about the prince of Persia or the prince of Greece. He didn't pray against them or pray for the angels. The Lord wants us to know about this warfare raging in the heavenly places, but he does not expect us to do anything about it. Knowing this helps us have the proper perspective on the events of history and the movements of nations. God is executing His plan. How He dispatches His angelic ministers and what conflicts they experience along the way should not be our concern. Rather, we are called to live by faith, believing that God has won the decisive victory over all our enemies, believing the promises in Scripture about the future consummation of that victory, and believing that God is working all things according to the counsel of His will, including the warfare in heaven and on earth. We are not to live by sight. 
simply making judgments or decisions based only what our eyeballs perceive. And we shouldn't expect to see more than God has already revealed in the Scriptures. Daniel wasn't expecting to find out anything about the heavenly landscape, and we don't find him asking for more. What he sees and hears in this vision is overwhelming for him. We need to be satisfied with what God has granted to us, confident in the sufficiency of Scripture that he really has revealed already to us all the information we will ever need from him to live a godly life, shining as lights in the world in the midst of a dark, crooked, and twisted generation. Do you pray with me? Father, we long to be faithful in this world, faithful like Daniel, faithful like the remnant that you have preserved for yourself throughout the ages. It is by your grace alone that we will remain faithful. And so we call on you. We ask you to enable us to stand firm in the onslaught that faces us every day in this world, whether from our own broken bodies or from the culture around us, from our own relationships that find themselves broken because of sin and misunderstanding. Oh, Father, we pray that you would bring healing and life and light to our relationships, to our engagement with this world. We do pray for your help, your divine supernatural help to enable us to speak well of you in this world and to be confident in your promises to hold fast to your word, no matter what. Thank you that you're with us in the midst of all of this. Thank you that you don't leave us to fight on our own. You don't leave us to struggle, to wrestle on our own. You are with us. You are in us by your Spirit. And your power is certainly sufficient to overcome all that comes against us. Thank you for your preserving power. Thank you for your equipping grace. We depend on it daily. We pray that your gospel would go forth in power in our own lives and across the world. Finish the mission, we pray. Bring your kingdom to bear on this world. And finally, send your son on the white horse. We long to see him. We long for the warfare to be over completely. Thank you that that is a guaranteed end. We look forward to the day. In Jesus' name, amen.